Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. And I want to start off by just sharing a story with you from 2018. My wife and I were lucky enough to be able to go to Greece and go to that beautiful island. You've probably heard of it. It's called Santorini. And when we were there, one of our friends said, apparently this is the most Instagrammable place in the world. I mean, everywhere you look, it's just beautiful. You could take a photo, you could post it up easily. There's these sheer cliffs, these white like cities just built on the cliffs, all this ocean before you. It's just beautiful. And one night, Michelle and I, before we went there, we, we decided, look, let's just spend a bit of extra money, just have one night at a nice place that's on the cliffs where we can watch the sunset. And so we're there this one night, and I think it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's on the screen for you in just a moment. That photo doesn't do it justice. But we're there, and we're looking out at the Mediterranean Ocean with the sun setting, and it was one of the most beautiful things that I've ever seen. And I wonder if you've got some sort of similar experience, if there's something beautiful that you've seen that's coming to mind right now. Or maybe you've got a bucket list and one day you want to see something like that in Santorini or you want to go and see the Northern Lights or maybe you're crazy enough to go and climb Mount Everest or something. What beautiful thing have you seen or do you plan on seeing? Now, the reason I ask you to think about this is because in our passage today, Jesus promises that his disciples, his followers will see something. And this thing, it's, it's far better than the Northern Lights or Santorini, he promises that they will see God. What if I told you that God is more beautiful than a sunset in Santorini or the northern lights or anything that you could see or experience in this world? What if I told you that God is actually the source from which that beauty was created? What if I told you that to see God is true happiness. Because we're in a series right now called The Beatitudes, The Path to True Happiness. We're looking at these eight Beatitudes, these eight lines from Jesus, which describe eight characteristics of his followers. They're kind of like birthmarks. They mark out the people of God and the divine happiness that they enjoy. And this morning, we come to Matthew 5, verse 8, where Jesus says, blessed, happy, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You might know um, a man by the name of Moses in the Old Testament. He saw God in a partial kind of way. He was very close to God, he had this special relationship with God. And it says in, in Exodus that, he, that God was said, so that he's like, kind of like a friend almost, the way that he speaks with Moses. And the closer Moses got, the more he wanted to know God. In Exodus 33, he says this, If you are pleased with me, God, teach me your way so I may know you. Then a few verses later, in verse 18, Moses said, Now show me your glory. He's not just sort of saying that off the cuff, Now show me your glory, Lord. That word now, the Hebrew word behind that expresses urgency. So he's saying, now, please, just show me your glory. The people that were closest to God just wanted to see more. He was that beautiful. He was that incredible. 
David, King David, is another who had a very special and a close relationship with God in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 27 verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It seems like the closer that some of these people were to God, the more that they wanted to see, the more that they were attracted to God. Now, maybe for you this morning or online, that's confusing for you. Maybe the picture you have of God in your mind is not something that you find very desirable or beautiful. Maybe it's a, that he feels like he's a religious killjoy or that he's just a benign grandfather in the sky. But the God of the Bible is infinitely beautiful. The God of the Bible is holy. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah encountered God and the angel said, holy, holy, holy. It's the only time that they've re repeated three characteristic, a characteristic about God three times to emphasize his holiness. And that, that's when we're talking about his otherness, his transcendence. He's like in this, a special kind of category. And when Isaiah encountered this vision of God, he said, woe is me, I am ruined. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, Isaiah was a prophet, so he was a preacher of the truth, and arguably, his lips were the purest part of who he was. And when he, when he saw God and his holiness, he said, I'm, my lips are unclean, I'm ruined, I think I'm going to die. He's that other if you want a transcendent experience, go no further than the living God. But God is also love. He took on human flesh and he died in the place of sinners because of his love for them. That's how far he went. He shed his own blood. He's good, perfectly good, morally perfect, never tempted by evil, never even considers it. Always he's just unchangingly good. But he's not some religious prig who looks down on other people and thinks, I'm too, I'm too much better, I'm, I'm better than you. Because God is also humble. Jesus, the one time he spoke about his heart in the whole Bible, Matthew chapter 11, and remember he's God in the flesh, he said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm humble in heart, I'm gentle in heart. God is just amazing. I can't possibly describe him well enough to, to help us see that he is the most beautiful person we could ever know. And this is why Jesus says, blessed, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. To see God is true happiness. And I assume this is a desire for many of us here today. You're probably here because you want to know God more. And that's the same thing for me. I want to know God more. I want to see more of Christ. But here's a tension for me when I was studying this line and thinking about this message. The tension I feel is this. I wouldn't describe myself as pure in heart, but yet it's the pure in heart who will see God. I think things I shouldn't. I do things I shouldn't. I feel things I shouldn't. And so does that mean I'll miss out on seeing God? Does that mean I've missed the cutoff for being pure in heart. Maybe that's a tension you feel as well. You're thinking, is this promise for me? Am I one of those who are called pure 
in heart. Will I see God or will I miss out? Well, if we're going to resolve that tension, we need to figure out why Jesus called his disciples the pure in heart. Because that's how we can understand what it means to be the pure in heart, how we get that kind of status. Because he is calling his disciples the pure in heart here. In Matthew 5, verses 1 to 2, it tells us that he is talking to them. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So he's speaking to his disciples primarily with the crowds listening in. And then when it comes to his line about the pure in heart, we know it's not an invitation or a command. He doesn't say, be pure in heart and you'll see God. He's not warning us. He's not saying, you better make sure you're pure in heart, otherwise you won't see God. He says, blessed, happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. It's a statement over his disciples. Now, you could be thinking, well, maybe he's talking to his disciples about another group of people, but I don't think that makes sense. A few verses later, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's making a statement about his followers. He's saying, blessed are you, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So the question is, how did the disciples get this status? Did they swindle Jesus into saying this? Did they fool him? Did they do enough good to outweigh the bad? Like, how did they get to that place? Well, let's explore that further as we ask the question, how do we get a pure heart? And we're gonna ask three questions. This is the first one today. How do we get a pure heart? Now, one approach to answering this question that was popular in that time and still is today is the outside-in approach. The outside-in approach. The Pharisees, they were a group of religious people in Jesus' day, and this was their approach. The Pharisees, that word literally means the separated ones. They separated themselves. They were passionate about purity and about holiness. And what they did was their, their experts, their Bible experts, looked at the Bible and they said, okay, here's all the commands, and let's, this is how we're going to stay pure. We're going to build a fence around it. And this is what they called their oral law. They built a fence around it by adding all these extra laws around it to make sure that they didn't break God's law in the Bible. So that was the approach that they had. They made extra laws. And that's the outside-in approach. It's about our efforts to make ourselves pure from the outside through behavior modification and moral effort and clever thinking. And yet Jesus continually taught that this approach was defective, In Matthew 15, some Pharisees criticized Jesus because his disciples were breaking one of their extra laws about washing your hands before you eat. And they hadn't washed their hands, so they're going, what's going on, Jesus? They're criticizing him. And this is how Jesus responded in Matthew 15. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, does not make them impure, but what comes out of their mouth, this is what defiles them. A few verses later, verse 17, he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of of, of the body? Things we eat, they go out. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, the words we say. And these defile them. They reveal what's going on inside. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So in a sense, Jesus says to the Pharisees, You've gone, you haven't gone nearly deep enough in your solution for this problem. You've just sort of stayed on the outside, but actually, you need a whole new core. You need a new heart. Your heart is actually impure. There's no use trying to do all these things on the outside if the very inner part of you is impure and fallen. Imagine you have a, a bad heart, like I'm talking about your physical heart now. And a surgeon says, look, your heart's really sick. You're going to need a heart transplant. Now, you can go home and you can eat as well as you can. You can sleep well and you can exercise well. But it gets to a point where that's not going to help anymore. You need a new heart. And this is what the Bible actually says to us. Outside of Christ, our hearts are desperately sick. They're fallen. They're they're beyond just behavior modification. We actually need a new heart. And that's what God promises to us in Jesus. That's the good news. And this is what I call the inside-out approach, the inside-out approach of God. 600 years before Jesus came, God promised to do an inside-out work on his people. Ezekiel 36, it says this, God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean, pure. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And God accomplished this through Jesus. Titus chapter three says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing, the cleansing, the purifying of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. God promised to do an inside-out work 600 years before, and Jesus accomplished it. How do we get a pure heart? It's not from the outside in, it's through Jesus. It's through Christ. If you trust and follow Jesus, then rest assured God has already done a heart transplant on you. He's already washed you and cleansed you. You are one of Jesus' disciples. You are one of the pure in heart. You know, the New Testament, it hardly, I can only think of one time where it talks to Christians as, as sinners, where it calls them sinners. The entire rest of the New Testament, it always calls Christians saints. They're always addressed as saints, which means holy ones, pure ones. After you put your faith in Jesus, God cleanses you, he gives you a new heart, he makes you a saint, it's your identity now. You become one of the pure in heart. You become one of the people of God. You are justified in God's eyes. You are washed. You are clean. You are loved. You are pure. That's good news. You know, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, but you're thinking about it, you're seeking, this is good news for you too. Because God isn't asking you to get on a religious treadmill 
and prove to him that you're pure enough and prove to him that you're acceptable enough. He's offering you a free gift in Jesus. Jesus has measured up for you in your place. That's why he lived on this earth. Jesus has died in your place. He's taken the judgment our sin deserves. He's done all of that out of love for you and it's a free gift for you to accept, for you to put your faith in Jesus. Jesus' message was never be a good person. That's a heavy burden. Jesus said to us, your hearts are sick. Actually, he was really blunt one time. He said, your hearts are evil. But I've not come to condemn you. I've come to rescue you. I've come to heal you. Will you follow me? Jesus offers to give us a pure heart through trust, through faith. So how do we get a pure heart? We don't receive a pure heart from the outside in. We receive it as a gift from God. We trust and follow his son, Jesus. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, Ben, I've, you, know, you don't know my week. You don't know my struggles. You know, I really messed up this week. I feel dirty. I feel guilty. I'll just repeat to you what Titus chapter 3 says. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Because of his loving desire. His, it was God's free choice to do that by grace. To be pure in heart is purely gift. It's not something we earn, it's something we receive through trusting in Jesus. This is the beginning of what it means to be pure in heart. It means to receive a pure heart from God, to be set apart by God, to be washed and sprinkled and cleansed by God through faith in Jesus. But there's more, and this is our second question. What else does a pure heart look like? What else does it mean to have a pure heart? Well, first of all, to be pure in heart is to have an undivided passion for God an undivided love for God, an enduring love for God. Soren Kierkegaard, he was a famous Danish theologian, and he once wrote a book about this titled, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's what it means to be pure in heart. It means not to be divided in your affections and in your loves, but to will one thing, to love one thing, to worship one God. Augustine, one of the great theologians from the fourth century, said the single heart is the same as is here called the pure heart. The pure heart, it's, it's one, it's not divided. It's singular and it's love for God. To be pure in heart is to have an undivided passion for God. We see this in Psalm 73. The psalmist in that psalm says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then he goes on in the psalm to complain about how the wicked seem to get away with things and they're trampling over the poor and over the vulnerable. And maybe the same feeling a lot of people have about Putin at the moment. He says, verse 13, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. What's the point? But what does he mean when he says, I've kept my heart pure? He's not saying I've been perfect. He's saying, I've devoted my heart to God. I've not divided my heart between worshiping different things. I've devoted my whole heart to God. My enduring desire 
and love is for God. And you see his singular, undivided passion for God come through at the end of the psalm. He ends up resolving the issue. He goes, if I said it was all in vain, I'd be a terrible person because God, you are good and I've seen how it works out. And then he says at the end, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my portion. He's my inheritance. He's my everything at the end of the day. And that's forever. To be pure in heart is to have an undivided passion for God. And my guess is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have this desire for God in your heart. You don't want to sin. You want to know Jesus more. You want to grow closer to God. And those are the desires of someone who is pure in heart. You know, at the end of last year, uh, my friends and I had a New Year's Eve gathering. And uh, we went around the circle and just asked, you know, what would be your hope for 2022? What would you like this year? What are you focusing on? And as we went around the circle, people kept saying, oh, I'd like to be closer to Jesus and this and this. And so <laughs> as we got around the circle, we were saying, okay, other than Jesus, this is what I'd like. And I don't think people were just sort of parroting it or being disingenuous. I think this was a genuine desire of their heart, that yes, they do want to be closer to God. And that's what it looks like to be pure in heart. Not perfect, but to desire God, to want to be closer. To be pure in heart is to have an undivided passion for God. One of the other reasons Jesus says the pure in heart are blessed or happy is because their actions actually line up with their heart. This is a key difference between the Pharisees' approach and Jesus' approach to obedience. You see, the Pharisees, they would tie up heavy loads of laws and duties and put them on the backs of sinners. Jesus criticized them for it. They would ask people with impure hearts to do pure things, and it was too much of a burden for people. But Jesus didn't take that approach. Instead, he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the first step, coming to Jesus, the transformative experience. And then he says, verse 29, take my yoke upon you. In other words, try my teaching out for fit. Come under my teaching and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to come to himself before he teaches us how to live. Jesus changes us from the inside out so that what we do on the outside is in alignment with what's going on on the inside. This is why to be pure in heart, the other thing I wanna talk about is it's to obey God from the heart. To be pure in heart is not just to have an undivided passion, but it's to obey and to do things from really what's real within us. We're not talking about perfect obedience and I'm not saying that you don't ever not feeling like doing what you're doing for God, but we're talking about sincere obedience. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart. What does he mean? Well, he kind of elaborates. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Purity of heart involves obedience from the inside out. It's not always perfect, but it's sincere. Your heart is in alignment with your actions. Last weekend, some of us were together uh, helping with some 
for cleaning up some of the floods, um, the damage that was done by the floods to some of our church families' homes. And while we were there, I didn't notice anyone was doing it because, oh, I've just got to be a good Christian, or anyone was begrudgingly there. There was actually just a sense of joy as we helped people in our church family. People were actually enjoying themselves as they served together and served some of the families from our church. And I think that's another picture of what it looks like to be pure in heart, it's to serve from the heart. It's something that's within you because you love these people, you love God. To be pure in heart is to obey God from the heart. So if we were to summarize what to be pure in heart means, we would say that as those who through faith in Jesus have received a new pure heart, they have a genuine and true passion for God and they obey God willingly from the heart. So what do we do with that now? Do we just sit back and relax and go on autopilot? Well, I think our surgeon illustration helps us to understand how we should respond. See, I talked before about how the surgeon might have to do a heart transplant on you if your heart is really sick. Well, imagine you were that person and you're on the operating table, you're contributing nothing to that process. They're doing all the work and everything. But when you wake up, they say, we've been given a new heart, this is a gift. You've been given a healthy heart. Now take care of it. Keep it healthy. Do what you need to do to take care of it. Live a long, good life. You've been given a, a fresh life and a fresh start. And that's really how the Christian life works. We don't contribute to that process of receiving a, good, a new heart but we're called to steward what God has given us. We're called to live in that new identity that we've been gifted. So that's where, what leads us to our third and final question. How do we keep our heart pure? How do we keep our heart pure? Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. How can we guard our heart and keep it pure? Well, first we need to understand what the Bible means about the heart. Because in the 21st century West, when we're talking about the heart, we usually say, well, I feel it in my heart, but my, I think this in my head. We have this difference between heart and head, but in the Hebrew mindset or the biblical mindset, it'd be, all of it would be together in the heart. So the heart is the center of who you are. It's the totality of who you are. It's the driving center of your life. That's why the Bible talks about the thoughts of the heart because the mind is seen as in the heart. The will is seen as if it's in the heart. The passions and desires, yes, are in the heart. So if I could just summarize sort of what the Hebrew heart is or what it's made up of, it's made of, up of the mind, the thinking. It's made up of the passions, the desires, and it's made up of the will, that decision-making power. And so we think about those three things. How do we keep our heart pure? Well, we think about our minds, our thinking. Colossians chapter three says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So we set our minds on things that God loves, that pleases God. We read his word. We try not to just completely gorge on things like Netflix and TV and stuff like that. Like we ask, what's shaping us? What are we feeding ourselves? What are we thinking on? Let's set our minds on things that are above. Secondly, we think about the passions, the desires. Think about how do we keep them pure? How do we guard them? Well, the answer is not to push down whenever you feel like something that's not a good desire. 
Thomas Chalmers wrote a book, brilliant book, a few hundred years ago. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he argued the way that we deal with desires that we think aren't right is not by ignoring them or shoving them down. It's actually by replacing them with a better desire, a more beautiful desire. And so he talks about how actually God is the most glorious, beautiful, enjoyable person you could ever know. So the more you get to know him, the more your desires will line up with what's true and good and lovely and beautiful. So I guess the answer to that is to set our hearts and to continually just stare at Jesus in the gospel, to read his word, to enjoy God, to think about what he's done for us, to think about who he is, to set our hearts on him and guard our passions in that way. And then the third thing, the will, the decision-making center. I think that's as simple as just making decisions that please God. Getting up each day and say, God, help me to do this, and I choose to follow you today. I choose to serve my husband, my wife, my children, others around me. I choose to stand for you today, Christ. Just exercising your will as much as you can in every small decision you make. Guard your heart above all else for everything you do flows from it. The pure in heart are truly blessed and happy and experience true and lasting happiness because one day they will see God. Their faith will become sight and they will see someone that is more beautiful than anything they've ever seen or experienced in this world. And so I'm just gonna finish by reading of that day when we'll see God face to face. It's from Revelation chapter 22. This is what it says. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Amen.